All right, uh, let's worship the Lord through his word. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to, to open them up to Psalm 134. Psalm 134. If you're visiting with us, we've been making our way through Psalm 120, through Psalm 134. Those are called the Psalms of Ascent. You'll see that at the top of those particular um, chapters of the Psalms. A guy by the name of C.S. Lewis uh, made this, this statement. When I first began to draw near to belief in God, I found a stumbling block in the demand that is made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded to be praised. We all despise the man or woman who demands to be Continued, who demands continued assurance of his own virtue or intelligence or brilliance. We despise the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. The Psalms were especially troublesome to me. Praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. Praise him. And why incidentally did praising God so often consist in telling other people to praise him, even in telling the whales and the snowstorms to go on doing what they would certainly do, whether we told them to or not. That's C.S. Lewis. And he's saying that, man, before I was a believer, I had a problem. What's all this praise God stuff? And what's all this other people commanding that God be praised? What is that about? If any other person on the earth demanded that we praise them, praise them, praise me, praise me, we would look at them and we would be offended. Well, what is it about God that makes God worthy of praise? That's what C.S. Lewis is wrestling with. Psalm 134, a song of ascent. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we turn our hearts to your word. And I pray that you would do, Jesus, what you've always done. You take the meager attempts of men and women. And by your power and your grace, you bless it abundantly. You fed thousands with a little fish and a little bread. And Father, I pray that you will take the little fish and the little bread that I offer your people and that you would do a mighty work in all of our hearts. Forgive me of my sins, Lord. Um, bless your people even in spite of me, I pray. Amen. So uh, this summer, in the middle of a pandemic, um, I insisted that we go on a family vacation. It's kind of what we do every summer. It's a big deal. And this year was uh, even more difficult. I finally twisted my wife's arm enough to get her to go somewhere. And so we rented an RV. Yes, we rented an RV through Cruise America. And so if you've been traveling and you've seen those long U-Haul looking things, that was us for a week, right? And it started out really, really bad. I fished the day before the trip. 
and where I've been fishing, my cell phone does not work. And had I had service, I would have known that the representative from the RV rental place called me on Friday afternoon. I missed her call. I saw the missed call on my way home Friday night, and I called her back, and of course she was out of the office. I did not get gas on the way home because I'm thinking to myself, surely if we have to be in Birmingham at four o'clock, we got plenty enough time to get gas. Went to sleep, woke up the next day, and we were on the road an hour later than we thought. And I'm thinking, we're still good, just gotta go to Birmingham. Then I listened to the voicemail that she left the day before. And she said, Mr. McGowan, this is Melanie from Cruise America. I'm just calling to let you know that our RV center closes at noon on Saturdays and not four, which the corporate website might say. It's 930. We're right here at Northside Drive in 55. <laughs> and it's no way we're going to get to Birmingham to get this RV by noon. And so I call her. I said, ma'am, is it possible for you to give us a little grace. And she says, no, sir, I, I got to leave. I, I got to go home. And she said, well, what time do you think you'll get here? And I said, oh, 1, 1.30. And she says, okay, you just call me and I'll come back and I'll let you check out. So I looked at the website and it says Cruise America Birmingham, but the address is not in Birmingham. It's in Anniston, Alabama, which is like 45 minutes on the other side of Birmingham. So it was just like bad thing after bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And then we arrive at the Cruise America place and I see two RVs and I'm thinking like, Lord, like, can I please not have them? And there was another one that only had 4,000 miles on it and that was ours. It worked. We got the RV. And then driving it was like fighting Mike Tyson. <laughs> Like, you're just kind of fighting not to go off the road because you're driving a U-Haul that's been modified, right? And so it, it is not aerodynamically good. We stopped in Charlotte, and we see my wife's little sister, whose wedding I was supposed to be doing that weekend, but because of COVID, they went ahead and got married, and we parked the U-Haul in their driveway and visited with them socially distanced. And then the next morning, we left later than we thought, and so we're driving into the mountains, in this RV, and it's late at night, and we finally made it. And then you got to go to an RV park. And that's when the fun begins. That's a whole nother culture that I was just not used to. <laughs> and then you have to plug the RV up. You got to plug into power. You got to plug into a water line. And then you have to drain the tanks. When I mean draining the tanks, I mean draining the waste that you've accumulated for two days living in the RV at night, and I've never done it before. Let's just say that I had to take a shower as soon as I got back in the RV. And then the next morning, we're together, we're away, and you wake up the mountains, and you can hear water. And for that, that, that right there, that, that feeling right there, 
when the journey has been hard and you didn't think it would happen and then you awake to beauty because you finally made it home. That's what's going on in this psalm. Psalm 134 is the last of the psalms of ascents. And guess how it ends? It ends with God's people in God's city worshiping and enjoying God, their home. There are some parallels between them and us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And though we're different, on a different continent, living in a different time, there are some things that are the same. And here's what the Bible says about you. If you are in Jesus right now, you're on a pilgrimage as well, just like them. And if you're in Jesus, you're looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. And if you're in Jesus, this is not your home. Peter calls us pilgrims and strangers and sojourners on this earth, so don't put roots down too deep because you can't stay here. We're going somewhere, just like they were going somewhere. We're going to God, just like they were going to God. And I think we can look at this psalm and learn from those who've gone before us. And that's what I want to tease out. What do we learn from these travelers to help us right now on our way? What do we learn? The first thing we learn is they made it home, and one day we will, and therefore we are always a hopeful people. The Psalm of Ascent started in Psalm 120. It started with this guy talking about dwelling in a city or cities where people hate him, they hate God, he's for peace and there for war. That, that's how it starts. It starts with him running for his life. And then along the way, you start to get these images of the journey. I look up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved because he does not slumber. That's Psalm 121. Right on the journey, they're afraid of falling to the left or to the right. And then the psalmist says, we won't, we won't fall because the Lord does not sleep. Psalm 124, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, if the Lord had not been on our side, when the people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us alive. It's a dangerous journey. The waters could have gotten them. The marauders could have gotten them. Their enemies could have gotten them. And it's not just problems on the outside. One of the Psalms also says that if you were to mark iniquities, O Lord, who of us could stand? That means that the problem isn't just out there. That means that if we're really, really honest, we're sinners inside of here, and sometimes we're the problem. And he says, Lord, if you marked our sins, who of us could stand? 
And then it seems to be one of the sins that they battle with is pride. Because David says, my heart is not lifted up too much right now. But that means that prior to it, he was a prideful person. And so in this journey, they're not just dealing with the problems out there. Their own pride starts to surface. And then, Psalm 134, somehow they're home. Now, how do we know they made it home? I think we have to wrestle with who the original audience of this psalm, who, 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 who was that? Now, look at verse 1. Come bless the Lord. Now, underline this, all you servants of the Lord. And then, then the psalmist quantifies exactly who's he's, who he's talking to. He qualifies it. Well, who are you talking to? Who are the servants of the Lord that you're talking to in this psalm? Not all of you even though we're all called to do what he's called to do here, but who's the specific audience? You, you, you who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Now, that's the question. That's the billion-dollar question of this song. Who stands, that, that language standing is not just a posture. That language standing can be set apart to serve. Who is set apart to serve in the house of the Lord, both day and night. If you were an average Jew, you couldn't go into the holies of holies. If you were an average Jew, you couldn't touch the holy things. That was reserved for one tribe. And that one tribe were the Levites. They were the priests. Now, think about these three passages, because I think they add meaning to what's happening here. Deuteronomy 10, the Lord has set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to stand, the same language there, to stand before the Lord and to minister to him and to bless his name. What about 1 Chronicles 9? The Levites were in the chambers of the temple, free from any other service, for they were on duty day and night. These must live in Jerusalem. 1 Chronicles 9:33. These were the sons of Levi by their fathers' houses, for their duty was to assist the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord caring for the courts and the chambers and cleansing all that is holy and any work of service for the house of the Lord. In other words, who are the servants set apart to stand before the Lord to serve him in his house day and night? It's only one, one portion of Israel. It's the Levites. And so what I think is happening here, it's like game seven, where the series is tied three to three, and the winner takes it all, and the coach calls a team meeting right before his players go on the floor, and once the locker room doors swing open, it's lights, it's cameras, it's action, and millions of people will be tuning in to this colossal and important game. And the coach gives a talk 
This is our strategy. This is what I want you to remember. Lay it all on the line. See, I think it's a high priest who's telling the Levites, the people are here. The knives are sharpened. The bread has been prepared. Your clothing is impeccable. And you are about to walk out into the temple and you will be greeted by thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And I want you to do everything we have rehearsed, only this isn't a game. You aren't out there performing for the people. You are the first worshipers. When you go out there and offer sacrifice, when you go out there and read God's word, you're not just serving God. I'm commanding you to not forget that you, priests, are called to worship God in the midst of your serving God. It's like a coach. Game seven. Go get them. But as you get them, you're worshipers. You're the first worshipers. Now think about this from a Levite's perspective. They don't have land. Their land is Jerusalem. But they got a calendar. And they know that the pilgrims will be traveling these, for these three feasts, appointed feasts. And they know the journey is hard and long and setbacks and marauders. They know that the journey is dangerous. So from their perspective, they're anxious and they're hopeful. Lord, will they make it? Will they make it? And if you're a pilgrim coming from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or Dan or Gad, and you got a long way to go, you're also nervous as well. Will we make it? Will we make it? Will we make it? And then it happens. It happens when the pilgrims come through the door to the gates of the temple and the Levites come out of the back and right then and right there, there's worship. And you know what this psalm says? Levites, your people made it. Pilgrims, you made it. Do you know if you name the name of Jesus? You will make it home. And you will have doubts. And you will have moments of darkness. And you will have seasons of setbacks and discouragement. And your sin will arise. And people will sin against you. But you got to see that these pilgrims, they made it. And that's good news to you if you name the name of Jesus. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're wrestling with. I don't know why your marriage is hard. I don't know why we're living in a pandemic. But what I do know is God is unchanging. And he will not lose you. We know how this story ends. It ends with us in the city of God. Therefore, we're hopeful. 
Second thing we see in this passage, we, like them, have been abundantly cared for. We are a cared for people. When I say abundant, I don't mean you got a lot of commas in your bank account. What I do mean is that you will lack no good thing for a life of godliness. You may not have what you want, but the Lord will give you what you need. He gives manna for today and manna for tomorrow until our tomorrow string up into years and decades into glory. He abundantly cares for his people. Now, two things are true in the Bible. One, we see God's attributes, his character, his essence. And what's also true is that God acts consistent with his character all the time. So it's not enough to say God is love. We have to say God actually gives real love to sinners. It's not enough to say God is merciful, but he acts in mercy, so he gives real mercy to sinners. It's not enough to say that God is powerful, but he really bends his power towards the blessing of sinners. And that's kind of what you see flowing out of this passage. Look at verse 3. And the Lord bless you from Zion. And then look at what it's saying. He is the maker of heaven and earth. Ironically, this is the reason the elders in Revelation 4 are praising him. It's because he's a creator of heaven and earth. Now, now why is that important in this context? There's a book by the name of, the name of it is Engaging with God, a Biblical Theology of Worship. It's written by David Peterson. And here's what he writes. He says, the object of ancient Near Eastern religions was to secure the goodwill of the gods by faithfully carrying out the prescribed ritual. These rituals were done to benefit the individual and the wider community and to prevent, prevent some natural disaster from occurring. So if you were to go into ancient Near Eastern times when this was written, what you see is polytheism. You would see multiple people groups worshiping multiple gods, but the baseline theology was the same, that I have to go and bow down, or I have to go and offer my child, or I have to go and burn this, and, and, and if I can keep doing all of this, then me doing all of this will stop the gods from pouring out wrath and bringing disaster on the earth. That, that's the backdrop of it. So here's, here's what he writes. It is no small thing that Israel, too, had their festivals. And their festivals acknowledged that the hand of God was in the cycle of seasons and fruitfulness of the earth. Now, think about this. The Jews were required to come to Jerusalem three times a year. Passover, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. So wherever you lived you had to come to Jerusalem those three times a year. And here's what I normally think until I read um, half of this book. I normally think when I hear Passover or I hear Feast of Booths or I hear Pentecost, I instantly go, these feasts were all linked to some spiritual provision atonement or sacrifice 
What this guy is saying is that that's true, but there's another element to all of these feasts. For example, Passover was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it was connected to the barley harvest, Exodus 12. Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, it celebrated the wheat harvest, Exodus 34. The Feast of Booze, or Feast of Tabernacles, was at the same time the Feast of Ingathering, which was the General Harvest Festival. He goes on to write, it would be absolutely wrong to think of the people in the Old Testament as being wholly occupied with the business of atonement for sins, or that their worship was somber or dreary, a, a dreary necessity. No, the Psalms testify to the joy of the pilgrims journeying to Jerusalem with the fruit of the ground in their hands. Now, why is that important? It means when they came to Passover, they got barley coming with them because they just got their barley harvested so that they could have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. When they came for the other feast, it was right after they had just harvested their land. And when they came to the Feast of Ingathering, it was the general harvest when everything was coming out. In other words, think about what it meant to be a Levite who didn't have 100 acres to plant. Guess how you ate? You got the tithe. When the pilgrims came, they came with an abundance. And a portion of that was given to you, the Levites. And you stored it up in the Lord's storehouses. And that's how you ate. Do you think it matters to the Levites that the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth? It does. Because when the people come with their stuff, Levites ain't planted nothing. And yet it's windfall profit. It blows into Jerusalem. And what's the image? I give you grain. I give you barley. I give you cattle. I give you corn because it's mine. I'm the maker of heaven and earth. And if I'm the maker of heaven and earth, that's not just a title that God wants to wear. It's a title that moves him to act that way towards his people. And we're learning he abundantly provides for them. Your material needs, I got that. But it doesn't stop there. He's also concerned with our spiritual and eternal needs. Look at that phrase right there in the first verse. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Put those two images together. Servants of the Lord in the house of the Lord. Why is that important? I remember what Moses says in Exodus 13. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. And when your sons ask you, what does this mean, this feast of unleavened bread? You shall say to him, by the strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You, you, is it connecting now? 
They're his servants in his house. But at one point, they were servants in Pharaoh's house. And in Pharaoh's house, he killed their kids. In Pharaoh's house, he didn't want to feed them. In Pharaoh's house, he didn't want them to prosper. In Pharaoh's house, he put his thumb on them and wanted to bring them to an end. And then the Lord does something with a deliverer. He sends Moses into Pharaoh's house to deliver them from the house of slavery, to bring them out of that land into his own land to be their new master. To give them this new law, to give them this new land, and to give them this new sacrificial system that will let unholy people dwell with a holy God. And you and I know that that's the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that someone greater than Moses has gone into a house that is far more sinister than Pharaoh. That we were in the bondage of our sin. We were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature a people who were not his people. We were by nature people destined for wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, has sent someone into our bondage and has brought us out, and the name of the Deliverer is Jesus Christ. He has come from the right hand of God to come down to the earth to buy us back, to offer atonement, to render to the Father perfect obedience, and then to go to a cross and to die for all of our sinning. And so we serve a God right here and right now who put food on your table, who put clothes on your back, who has kept you in your right mind, And we serve a God who has sent his son to redeem you. You you, you get the image? They were abundantly cared for, material and physical, eternal and spiritual. And God says, I give it all. There's a book that... It's called Every Moment Holy. It's a liturgy. And it perfectly weds these ideas that our God is king of creation and king of salvation. Listen to the way that these things flow together. Our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small. Christ, you are king of snow, maker of weather, king of sunlight and storms, king of gray skies and rain, king of autumn and spring, which is beautiful right now because we're going into autumn. Aren't you thankful that it's cooling off? All right. And our thoughts of you, O Lord, have still been too small. You are king of harvest, king of grain, king of wine, 
king of plenty, king of canyons, and still our thoughts of you have been too small. You are Lord of atoms, ruler of electrons, Lord of gravity, king of constellations, Lord of novas exploding, Lord of speeding light, high king of highest galaxies, and still our thoughts of you have been too small. You are a God of justice, God of wisdom, God of mercy, God of redemption. You are Lord of love, and still our thoughts of you have been too small. You were before all things. You created all things. In you, all things are held together. You are Lord of lords, King of kings. Oh, Jesus Christ, my everything. And still, my thoughts of you have been too small. When you try to think about all the ways that God has cared for you, you will never, ever, in 10,000 eternities, see it all. Because your thoughts of him are still too small. That is a big God. And he's ours. I'm going to close with this last point. We're commanded to praise him. Therefore, we are also a worshiping people. If you notice this passage, there are three commandments, and these are imperatives. These are not recommendations. These are not suggestions. It's come, bless the Lord. That's a command. Lift up your hands to the holy place. That's a command. And bless the Lord. That's another command. Now, why the command? Why the command? Remember Luke 17? On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village and he encountered ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted their voices. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they made their way to the priests, they were healed. And one of the nine came back. And he praised God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. And he gave him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found? to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, you rise and you go your way. Your faith has made you well. So Jesus heals 10 lepers. They all get physical healing. The leprosy leaves and only one turns around. And the one who turns around, Jesus says, where are the other nine? Where are they? And he says, you, you, who turned around, you get a double healing. You get the healing of your body, and you also get the healing of your soul. We make the mistake to think that we're, we are not like the nine. You see, the commandment threefold in this psalm, praise him, praise him, lift your hand up. It's there because here's what we do. I'm going to bless them. And I'm going to be good to them, and I'm going to be kind to them, 
And you know what we do? All right, God, thank you. Right? We do it. And so the psalm is commanding. It's saying, no, 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 no. You don't make it to Jerusalem, and you don't have crops, and you don't have atonement unless the Lord gave it. It was not your navigational abilities. It was not your tenacity. It was not your stamina. It was not your brilliance. It was not your intelligence. It was none of that. You are here because I made you come here. And that's the fitting response. When we serve a God who will make sure that we get home, and we serve a God who will give us all that we need materially and spiritually, what we need right now and what we need for what, forever, you know how you respond to that? With what he's commanding in this song. You praise him. You bless his name. You let praise continually flow from your mouth. You walk around here as a grateful, praising person. C.S. Lewis, he had an epiphany. And he says, I get it now. He says, I believe I see what is meant in the Psalms. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows with praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their spouses. Readers praise their poets. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite games. People praise the weather, the wine, the dishes, the actors, the cars, the horses, the colleges, the children, the flowers, and the mountains. I had not noticed that just as men praise what they value, they spontaneously urge others to join them in the praising. That is why we go to a restaurant. Have you had that meal? Stevie Wonder, in 1976, wrote a song. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she lovely? Y'all know, y'all know the tune, right? For the longest, I, heard, I saw somebody say they didn't know the tune. All right, you got to go look up Stevie Wonder, Isn't She Lovely? It's a classic. For most of my life, I thought that he was writing about a, a, a girl, a woman. But the song is actually about his daughter. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? Less than one minute old. I never thought through love we'd be making one as lovely as she. But isn't she lovely? Made from love. You know what Stevie is doing in there? He's saying, come. Y'all see my baby girl? He's inviting the whole world. Come, you see my baby girl? Come, I'm celebrating my, my baby girl. And that's what C.S. Lewis says is the essence of praise. The essence of praise is that we not only aspire and love, but we start to talk to others about the thing that we love. And what the psalmist is saying is if you will praise your daughter, if you will praise your, your wife, if you will praise your job, if you will praise your bank account, if you will praise a meal, Will you not direct that praise upward? In this sense, worship is normative in the sense that you can be an atheist right here, but I guarantee you, you worship. We're all praisers. Look at what comes out of our mind. And what the God of heaven is saying, I'm the ultimate source. 
so it's fitting that you respond by praising. And worship is formative, y'all. That as we worship, does God not show us more of himself? And in seeing more of himself, our affections for him are heightened. And so we're not, it's not only normal, but it forms us as we do it. The more we learn, the more we grow, the more we grow, the more we worship, the more we worship, the more we learn. It's this dance where worship is forming and shaping us. And so the psalmist is actually saying, worship the Lord, because as your gaze is caught up into him, he is going to minister to you through it. We have manifold reasons to be a worshiping people. We'll make it home. We will have no good thing not given to us. All of our needs will be met, spiritual and eternal and temporal. And here's the good news. I'm going to close with this, y'all. If you do a search in the book of Revelation for all the imperatives, that's commands, all the verbs that are in the command form, and cross that, with the verb for worship. When is worship commanded in the book of Revelation? It's one place. It's in Revelation 19. When John sees an angel, and he's about to bow down before the angel, and the angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow dude just like you. And he says, I command you to worship God. That's the only time worship is commanded in Revelation. Now, why is this important, Pastor L? It's commanded here three times to accommodate our needs. But there is coming a day when worship will not be commanded. When you see all of those scenes with these four living creatures around the throne who are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and they say it day and night, and you step out of there and you see the scene of the 24 elders who every time those creatures that you can't even draw say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, every time they say it, and they say it day and night. And every time they say it, the creatures, the the 24 elders get off their thrones and slam down their crowns and they start worshiping. And then you step out a little bit more and John sees a a, a vision of 144,000 from all the tribes of of, of Judah, all the tribes of Israel. And it means that all of physical Israel will make it in. And then John sees another vision where people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are worshiping him, and here's the thing, ain't none of them had to be commanded to worship God. Not one of them. They're worshiping him because this old man that we carry, this body of death that tries to blind us to his glory, it's gone. And worshiping God will be as natural as it is for you to have breathed this entire service. You will just do it. 
my prayer is that that vision of him breaks in now and that we don't need a command. We just want to give it because we've seen his goodness and we know we'll make it home. Let's pray. Father, my one prayer for us is that right there. Remove the scales, open our eyes, let us see your glory, your splendor, your majesty, your goodness, and may we be a people who worship you, not just here, but in the quiet moments of our lives, in the quiet way that we go about doing our work. Father, make us people conform to the image of your Son, for Jesus' sake, amen.